You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is J.M.D. Mateus, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast, and I have an interview with J.M. DiMatteis. And we're talking about Craven's Last Hunt, which just recently celebrated its 30th anniversary, if you can believe that. This is one of the best Spider-Man stories out there, uh, and so I hope you listen to the companion episode called Craven's Last Hunt that we released last week, so you can get um, my opinion and Adam's opinion on the issues as we kind of dive deep into the content of what happens in this story. The audio quality in this interview didn't come out as clear as I hoped it would. Uh, I I tried to EQ it a little to help make it a little bit clearer, and this is kind of the best I was able to get it. So it might be an interview that you need to kind of just sit down and listen to in a nice space with some nice headphones. As usual, you can send me emails at epicmarvelpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit my website, epicmarvelpodcast.com, or find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, where I post lots of pictures and stuff, um, new epic announcements, all that kind of thing. And don't forget to support us on patreon.com slash thunderquack, and uh, make a little donation to help keep this podcast up and running. Um, I can't do it without your support. Well, let's get this show on the road. Here is the interview with J.M.D. Mateus. Did you have in mind at all that this story would be great in a just a singular graphic novel form rather than a serialized f- monthly or weekly, in this case, form? You know, honestly, when you work, especially in those days, not everything was being collected, first of all. Now, you know, you sneeze and they collect it. Um, then, you know, these collections, especially the, the hardcover collections like they did with uh, Kratom, wasn't, uh, wasn't a given. And I wasn't thinking about that. I was only thinking about writing the best story I could. We had six issues. We told the best story we could. And, you know, that's like when people ask, well, did you think then that people would be reading it 30 years later and be a classic? Nobody thinks like that. Yeah. You're thinking about what's in front of your face. What you're thinking about is simply creating the best story you possibly can right then and there. And if people remember it six months later, forget 30 years, if they remember it six months later, you're lucky. Um, one of the things that happened kind of right before your story is that um, Peter and Mary Jane got married. Um, how did right. how did that event affect the way that you uh, crafted or, or changed the story? You know, as I recall, I think probably when I, I had, I suspect that by the time I pitched the story and was approved, um, we knew that they were getting married. If not, we found out somewhere along the line. So what the what the marriage did more than anything was it it, it improved the story because if, say you know say we had written the same exact story with Peter and Mary Jane's love as an anchor the way it is in the story it's, it's Peter's emotional anchor it's the thing that, that keeps them steady and, and brings him back from the grave if they had not been married it's 
still would have been a powerful moment. But the fact that they just got married, really just before we launched the story, uh, gave the story a whole other layer and level of emotional uh, resonance that I think it would not have had had they not been married. You know, it's the same thing when people ask me about the black costume. Um, had, uh, the story would, would have been a solid story. And what, the fact that Peter was in a black costume, it fit the tone and the feeling of that story so well that, again, it added a whole other layer and level visually and emotionally. Uh, so those sort of, I guess, happy accidents for us that we had both those elements of play there. Now, did you write a full script to give to Mike Zeck, or did you do this story Marvel style? We work Marvel style, but I think people have a, a sometimes have a very distorted vision of what Marvel style is. Okay. Uh, they hear these stories about Stanley and Jack Kirby, where Stan would call Jack up and go, "Let's bring back Doctor Doom," and then Jack would go off and draw 22 pages, and, uh, <laughs> and Stan would put it in the dialogue. Doesn't work that way. Right. Uh, plots are, are very lengthy and very detailed. They're broken down page by page. Uh, sometimes panel by certainly these days for me, you know, my plots are page by page. Pound by pound, um, camera angles, suggested dialogue, a deep dive into the psychological aspirations and, and, uh, 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 and emotional uh, uh, makeup of the characters. So they're very detailed. Now, with someone like Mike Zeck, I don't have to see him every panel. And since I no longer own those plots, I couldn't tell you whether I went panel by panel. But I know the, the visual motifs about, you know, when we're going to cut, we're going to cut away every couple of pages to so the sequence with the with the grave digger, things like that, all the little visual motifs were all there in the plot. Uh, but the great thing is I was working with Mike Zeck, who's one of the best visual storytellers on the planet. So even if he had ignored everything I wrote, it still wouldn't look great. But there's there's a lot of information in the plot. The the beauty of working the plot first is then you get that artwork back and you can react to it before you write the captions and dialogue. So that if there's a sequence where maybe I thought it required more uh, more narrative captions, more detailed explanation. Then you look at the art and realize, oh, I don't have to do that. Or other pages where maybe you realize, oh, I do need to say more here than I would have said had I written the full script. The, the, the interplay uh, with the artist is the most magical part of, of, um, of working plot first. And with someone like Mike, the best part is he's got it all there. You don't have to worry about the storytelling. His storytelling panel to panel, page by page, is so clear that if you read through Craig's last time, you're never going to see anything in the dialogue or the caption where I'm explaining what's happening in the visual. I didn't have to because it's clear as a bell, which allowed me to go down and go deep and write these captions that were, were primarily, if not all, interior monologues. We, I, I was, since Mike told the story that I created, he told it so perfectly in his visuals I was able to make this a much deeper psychological exploration. Someone else had drawn that story. I might have spent half my time explaining the visual. I didn't have to do that with Mike, because Mike is is very Was I know that you've worked with Mike before this story in Captain America. Was Mike your choice for the story? I don't think Mike was my choice. I got hired. Uh, we actually got hired to write Spectacular Spider-Man. That's where it started. Um, we were going to be the new team on Spectacular Spider-Man, and they said, oh, we want to get Mike Zeck. And my reaction was, fantastic. Because, you know, Mike and I worked for at least two years together on Captain America, and it was a great collaboration. One of my, one of my favorite people to work with. So when they said, you know, how about Zeck, I was, I was over the moon. Um, 
But the interesting thing was we were hired to be the new team on Spectacular Spider-Man, uh, which would have been a linear month-to-month telling of that story. And it was only down the line when Jim uh, Southrop came in as editor, and he looked at that story and he said, no, we can't do this this way. We can't have Spider-Man in one book buried alive for months while he's fighting Dr. Octopus in another book. It'll kill the reality of the story. So he was the one, he was the first one in the business, who said, why don't we run this one story through all three of the Spider-Man books? And it's a model that people have been imitating ever since. And all that credit for that goes to Jim Stalker. Did you have much say in uh, like the color choices and the, the placement of the dialogue and that kind of stuff? Like, How involved are you in all of this process? Uh, in those days, before everything was written digital, I would get, uh, I would get uh, scans of the pages. So I would write my script and I would take a, a marker and I would put in all the captions dialogue where they indicate where they went on the page. And with a story like this, where there's all this interior monologue in one caption playing off the other, playing off the dialogue, playing off an interior caption, it was really important that I had that control and, and place the, the caption and the balloons uh, where, where, where I thought they would have the most impact on the page. Because those placements, where the eye goes, along with the words within the caption, creates a certain rhythm and a certain pace and a certain mood and a certain energy. So uh, the, the placement is, is, is very, very important. So I was glad on that story that I was able to be able to do that. These days with digital, you, know, you get, get everything digitally, and I basically, uh, I write the script, I indicate the panel, uh, I write what's in it, but, but the, um, the letterer will, or, the, or the editor will, will place the balloon. If I have a problem with the placer, I always have a chance to to uh, put in my two seconds and say, why don't we move that here and move that there? Uh, but but with Craven in those days, I, I did all the choices myself, as did all writers working in that style. As for the coloring, no, I, I was not involved with the coloring. I believe Bob Sharon colored that book and did a beautiful, beautiful job. We had all really, really top-notch people. The, the lettering was fantastic. The coloring was fantastic. Penciling, you know, every element came together on that story. And any one element going awry could, could throw off the entire story. So we were very, very lucky that every element was there. As a writer, one of my pet peeves is lettering. And, and I know as a writer that, that bad lettering can kill my scripts, can kill the reading experience. You know, the lettering is the, is the visual data stream, if you want to put it that way, that goes into the eye of the reader to help them perceive your story. And if something's off with the lettering, you're not getting the story that you intended. And when lettering is good, as, as our lettering was, it, 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 it gets your story across in a, in a better way. So we were, we were lucky across the board, every single person uh, that, that contributed to that book was at the top of their hand. Let's talk more about these, uh, the lettering and the narration here, because you do some really cool things with, um, like, each character has a different font, and um, boxes are colored differently to indicate who's speaking. Um, that that is just a, something that wasn't seen in comics at this time. It was very kind of new and out there, and uh, uh, very well done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, you know, I, I'm sure I, I suspect that I I had indications of how I wanted each character's voice to be lettered. Again, it's been a long time, so I can't swear to any of this, you know, because um, I don't own those scripts anymore. Um, but um, in terms of the coloring choices, I had nothing to do with that. And, that really and again, when you have a great letter, we can go in and 
do these different styles, creative lettering styles is unique and really powerful, um, and, and make it make it unique for each character. It's really really important, and it helps it helps sell the story. You can have the, the again, you can have the best script in the world if the art and the storytelling aren't there, if the lettering goes off, the coloring can kill great art, bad inking can kill kill great penciling. It's all got to be in balance in a comic. And and I think one of the reasons why this story has has sustained itself all these years is yeah I'll take I'll take whatever credit you want to give me for writing a good story but it was a good story but it's because all the elements were in place mm-hmm. and maybe I think had I had I written the same exact story with a different artist maybe a different letter was there any any of those elements would have gone gone awry we might not be talking about the story today right yeah that's very true. Okay, Craven the Hunter. Can you tell me about the Dostoevsky um, influence in this in this character's psyche? Sure. Um, you know, Craven, as, as people probably know, as I've read that introduction that you mentioned, Craven was not originally even going to be the villain of the piece. I had created a whole new villain. Same basic storyline, but I created a whole new villain. And uh, I happened to be flipping through uh, Marvel Universe handbook, if you remember those. And uh, came to the page for Craven. And to this day, I don't know if it was ever mentioned actually in a story, or if whoever wrote the handbook was just messing around and was creating a bad story. But they met, they mentioned that Craven was Russian. And this bell went off in my head. I I I, I love Dostoevsky. I, in my pantheon of writer God, he is way 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 out there. And Crime and Punishment, the Brothers Karamazov, and the Idiot, all these great novels. Um, and and the Russian soul. In, within these novels, the Russian soul, so full of uh, highest aspirations, the lowest urges, and all this duality and conflict uh, pulling at each other, this was something that I related to because I think it speaks to all of us as human beings, as we all we all uh, contain incredible contradictions. And when I saw that Craven was Russian, something clicked for me. And I went, I understand this guy. I know who he is in a way I never had before. In point of fact, I had never given Craven a second thought. If I was going to make a list of my favorite timeline bills, Craven would have never been on it. But reading that one line about him being Russia, uh, Russian really set my uh, imagination on fire. And, uh, and I went and I called up Jim Alsey, who, who people know as Christopher Priest now, who was the editor at the beginning of the process. And I said, forget that new villain. I'm going to use Craven. He said, but I like the new villain. <laughs> I said, no, no, we're going to use Craven. And, uh, and really, again, there's another element. One of these happy actions. Had I written that story with the original villain that I had in mind, might have been a great story. But one of the things that people responded to so much was that we had taken this classic Spider-Man villain and reinvented him, uh, turned him into a, a, a character with a level of depth that I think he never had before. And then, of course, we killed him in the end. You know, someone would have said, Six months before that story came out, yeah, they're going to kill Craven. A lot of people said, "Who cares?" The great thing I would say, the great thing is, make people care desperately, and then when you knock the character off, then their heads explode, and they're all going, "Why did you kill someone? I can't believe you killed such a great character." But I don't think anybody considered Craven a great character before that story came out. He was a fun character, but he was certainly, at least in my mind, never a classic Spider-Man villain. Wow. Yeah. Um... I know that you were originally going to call this story Fearful Symmetry, 
and you allude the, to that with the William Blake poem that you put in here. But there's so many allusions okay. to symmetry throughout this whole thing, from um, it, from the simple fact that at the very beginning, Craven predicts his own death, um, and then when when we end, he, he's dead. So it's, and just this, it's this really nice bookend. Everything is bookended um, in a very symmetrical way. You know, and I would really love to say, I'm so brilliant, I planned all that out right from the start. But you know what? It doesn't work that way, at least not for me. You know, you have certain things, you know, you always want to map out a story, you have a beginning, the middle, and end, the other place you want to get to. Um, but I keep talking about happy accidents. You always have to be open to happy accidents. And the fact that, that the story at a certain point and the characters at a certain point take over. I may think I'm in control. I, I, I've often used the, uh, the metaphor of a horse. You know, you're on a horse and you have a goal. I got to go six miles north. And you get on the horse and you start to gallop. And the horse starts to pull off, you know, to the east. You go, horse, what are you doing? You pull it back. You try to force it to go north. And that's the way it is with the story. At a certain point, the story takes over. And if it decides to, to gallop off to the east, you have a choice. You can try to force it to go north, or you're going to gallop off to the east. And I always choose to surrender to the story horse and let it take me where it wants to go. Um, so, so, um, so that's what happened with this story. So, I, I give the credit if I'm going to give it to anyone to the story itself, or you could say to the unconscious mind, because I did not map out every element. I just started writing, and I let the story uh, take me away, and I followed where it led me. Uh, so you kill Spider-Man at the beginning of this, uh, or sorry, at the end of this first issue here, and then he yeah. is, he's not in the next chapter at all, like he doesn't appear a single time. Did you have any people writing in that actually thought that you'd done this for real? Or was people were people like, oh yeah, no, this is just for the story? Well, I remember people writing in, but I have heard, uh, I, I guess people come and they talk about the story a lot. Uh, people tell me, especially if they were younger when they read this, uh, that they, they thought, oh my God, Spider-Man's really dead. <laughs> and, and that goes with what, what Jim Salakrup uh, was saying, you know, if you do it all uh, throughout through one story throughout the three books for two months, then you buy into that reality and you don't know what's going to happen. What's Marvel going to do? Maybe they're going to have somebody new be Spider-Man when the story's over. You know? um, it never occurs to me that people will actually believe that because, uh, you know, that when you've been reading comic books a long time, you know that even if a character is, quote, dead, they're never going to stay dead very long. You know? Or if they do stay dead for a couple of years, they'll still come back. Um, but yes, I've heard from people that they really did believe in Spider-Man was dead, and that's great. I can imagine that that even added even more to the suspense of reading that story. It's a fairly suspense, maybe one of those, just on the level of sheer suspense and keeping you, keeping your nerves on edge, and maybe one of those suspenseful stories that were written. There are a few dream sequences in this story, and they are so visually amazing, just incredible. Mike Zek did an, a fantastic job. Um, I yeah. think in particular when when Craven is fighting the giant spider that's made up of millions of tiny spiders, and yeah. one where Peter's like being birthed out of a, a spider. <laughs> and it's like, how did you describe these scenes to Mike? You know, they were described in a fairly detailed way, but as I keep saying, I could have described that same detailed scene to six different artists, and you would have had six different versions, and the Mike Deck version would have been the best of the bunch, no matter what. You know? But but no, they were described. Uh, you know what 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 you saw on the page is what I described. 
to say to an artist that we do, okay, Mike, it's just white space with a tiny figure of Peter Parker naked hunched over in the center of it. Um, someone else had drawn that, it would have been the most boring page you had ever seen in your life. Mike makes everything he does dynamic and dramatic. I, you know, I, I've been you know, singing Mike's phrases for 30-something years, and I never get tired of it, because he really is that good. After Craven kills Spider-Man, Craven takes over as Spider-Man and starts doing like trying to be Spider-Man, but even better. What was the the um, what's Craven thinking here? Because he he wants to be a he wants to prove himself more superior, but is he trying to do things that Spider-Man is not willing to do, not capable of doing? Well, clearly he, he's willing to cross the line. Uh, which in his mind makes him, uh, to use the phrase, that's in yourself, or the, the superior side of <laughs> It wasn't enough for him to just, quote, kill Peter. Uh, he needed to kill him, prove he was better than him, and then bring him back from the grave to say, look what I did. You know, just to kill him and be better than him was, was one thing, but he needed to rub it in his face and say, I am better than you. Finally, after all these years of breaking me and humiliating me, I have won. Mm-hmm. And his mind, he had. He, of course, was mad as a hatter, but in his mind, he had won. And then he literally has nothing else to live for at that point. Right, right, exactly. But of course, you know, I always underscored people. So there were people that thought, which I couldn't imagine, the people thought we were somehow glorifying a suicide. Right. That we hit the drumbeat about Craven's mother in a mental institution. And it's very clear that he has inherited some form of mental illness. And the last thing he said before he pulled the trigger is they said my mother was insane. <clears throat> to make it very, very clear that this is not a sane person. This is not a death with honor. Um, this, is, this is a sad uh, and sick death. I was really, uh, whether consciously or unconsciously, I remember being a kid and hearing about Ernest Hemingway's suicide. And here was Hemingway, who some people viewed as sort of the man's man the great hunter, the great macho writer, has had his life in his gun his mouth pulls, pulls the trigger. And I always I thought of Hemingway with that macho hunter thing and Craven. And and I think that's one of the things that led me to that specific ending of Craven. Uh, you use Mary Jane very sporadically through this story. Um, is she there? I feel like she's almost kind of there just to remind you that, that they're married. Well, she does need to be there because if we don't keep seeing her, Peter's whole return from the grave, which ultimately is all about his love for his wife, uh, would lose a lot of that power. Would lose a lot of that power. And you need that real person in the middle of this. You know, Peter Parker, uh, I, I always say Peter Parker because Spider-Man is a fiction. Peter Parker is the character, whether the mask is on or off, it's always Peter Parker. Um, Peter Parker's a real guy, with a real life, with a new wife, uh, and, and, and that's the center of his life. So we have to see her. We have to keep cutting back to her to get a sense of that life that he's lost and that love that they're waiting for him when he does return. Um, tell me about Vermin's role in this whole thing. Now, he's a character that you created with Mike back in uh, Captain America. Right. Um, right. And, and the introduction uh, that you wrote says that you kind of brought him in late in the game. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't think he would, he, he, well, you have to realize that I've been playing with the story in various forms for years uh, before we got, got it to a place where it was a Spider-Man story. 
Um, so I, I, I must have pitched them the basic idea. I remember Tom Falco and Jim Alden took me out to lunch to offer me the book, and I, I, I said, well, I got this idea. I pitched them the general idea, and they liked it. And they said, now we're going to have Mike Death on the book. And that made me think about Vermin. Again, happy action. If they, if they had said, you know, uh, Joe Bernstein's thrown the book, I wouldn't have thought of that. And maybe that whole element would have never come into the story. I don't know. Um, but because Mike was, was coming out of the book, I started thinking, well, maybe we need another element here, something to uh, to contrast the two different visions of Spider-Man, uh, the Craven vision and Peter's vision. And and as you mentioned, Mike and I had used Berman and Craven when we were doing Captain America together. And he, you know, if you want a wild card character, uh, you know, this is literally a man rat uh, that eats people. He lives in the sewers. He's sort of the manifestation of, of the most lowest, uh, most degrading, uh, I'm sorry about this, but the uh, most degrading, fearful impulses that are human psyche. You know, in, in a way, I think that each of these characters represents a different aspect of, this, of human psyche, and certainly a different aspect of my psyche. A vermin is, you know, the part of the fault that thinks that we are worthless, that we are, you know, whether, whether we're aware of it or not, everybody has that little critic in their head. Some people have a lot of it, some people have a little of it, but that, that's vermin down there in the sewers of our of our unconscious, you know, feeling worthless, like a little a little animal only worth, worthy of living living in the sewers, living in the shit down there, you know? So vermin was just a great, great element to bring in because he was, Pathetic and repulsive and really dangerous all at the same time and brought a whole new layer to the story. And again, as I said before, really allowed us to, to put a contrast there. This is how Peter handles the situation. This is how Craven, thinking he's, quote, superior, handles the situation. Of course, in the end, the superior Spider-Man is the real Spider-Man. There are there are tons of times in this throughout all of these issues where you do a lot of repeating panels, um, like the gravedigger you mentioned yeah. before, um, throughout the pages digging deeper and deeper, or the one issue where Craven is unmasking his face slowly and like over several pages. This this sense of repetition, I feel like it's um it kind of is like Craven has been replaying things in his mind over and over again uh, to the point where it's become a kind of a distorted view of, of reality and it kind of works, it really works together, I think, the, the visuals and, uh, and just the narrative there. <laughs> that's more of a comment than a question. <laughs> well, that's okay, and, and, and I think that's true. Also, you know, when I think of this story, I think of, of, of you know, the kind of the classic jungle jungle. <laughs> And, and then the rhythm rises and the rhythm goes down and sort of we keep cut, like we keep cutting back to the grave digger and then the, the drum beat comes up and then it goes down again. We keep cutting to the spider scrawling over the grave, the drum beat goes, the hand breaks through, the drum beat goes. And there's something very powerful about that, about sort of moving away from something, going back to it, away and back. And this story is very rhythmic. There's a real, real rhythm and, and I think a real poetry in what's going on the way the captions are broken up, both in terms of the poetry of the word and the rhythm of the placement on the page and the rhythm of the way the sentences are broken up. Now, I'm not saying I do this stuff consciously, because 90% of the time I don't. It just comes out that way, but I'm grateful for my unconsciousness. Now, thinking about this story uh, 30 years later, is there anything that you would, would do differently? Is there anything I would do differently? Yeah. <laughs> 
or is it the um, perfect story? I'm a, I'm a different person, I'm a different writer. I probably write a lot of things differently. I don't know exactly what. I think one of the things, looking back, that I would have done uh, would be to, you know, because Craven being Craven, the guy from the jungle, he has these, all these African assistants. And they don't really play a major part in this. And they almost seem like his servants in, in a degrading way, which is not the intention. But I can look back and see where it could be interpreted that way. And I would like to have maybe, I could go back to give them more character and more definition and more dimension. Um, but you know, you can't go and re rewrite something you did 30 years ago. It has to stand as what it is. And I think the story has held up really, really well over the years. Um, it's a reflection of a real specific time and a place in, in, in my life and in, and in all our lives. You know, I was going through very specific things when I was writing that story. And they weren't all very pleasant things in my personal life. And that pain and that struggle went into the story. Uh, had I written, I said before, had I written that story six months later when I was uh, in a better place, the story might not have been that powerful, might not have been that memorable. So, yeah, I'm sure there, if I sat down and wrote that story from scratch today, there might be a lot of things that were different. But, I, you know, I can't do that. And I have to respect the writer I was. You know, even when I look back at stories that I think, Oh God, that's really not very good. Um, I've learned over the years I have to respect my younger self, my younger learner self, because inevitably someone's going to come up to me at a convention with that story that I hate and go, God, my favorite story you've ever done. Hmm. So um, there's there's something I want to change in virtually everything I've ever written because you know it's just the way we are. We want to look back and go, Oh, that sentence is clunky. Oh, if only that character was deeper. Oh, if only I had done this a little better. If the dialogue was a little sharper, but the work's after it. it's done, and and I'm not going to go back and rewrite it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it seems like as this book has been published and republished and republished now for three decades, that it seems to hold up pretty well. So I, I I step out of the way, I bow in respect to my younger self, and say, you know, job well done. Uh, sometimes I read old stuff that I, of mine that I think is really good. And I'm just as baffled by how I did it as I am by how, how terrible the, the bad stories were. You know what I mean? Everything's like, how the hell did I do that? That's really good. I don't know if I could do that now. So sometimes I think there are things that my younger self did that I can't do now. And just as I know there are things I can do now that I couldn't have done back then. So, you know, the work has to stand, stand on its own there. So, yes, I would love to have taken those, uh, those other characters and deepened them and given them more dimension. But beyond that, uh, yeah, let the story stand. And I did, I did a little story um, years later, a little backup when they did the, the last the story where Craven came back and came back and was resurrected. I think Joe Kelly wrote it was a really good story. And I did a backup story that I think was four or five parts was about uh, an, an unknown, uh, heretofore untold encounter between uh, Kane of uh, the Dark Clone of Spider-Man and Craven in the month just before Craven's last time. And, and I gave Craven an associate, uh, an African associate, who I, I gave that character far more dimension than those assistants had in Craven's last time. So that gave me an opportunity to deepen that. Um, and I think if I ever went back and had a chance to write Craven again, uh, I'll never talking about That's something that I would like to do, to really take those people around him and show who they really are and give them that, to give them dimension. I don't know if anyone's uh, ever taken the time to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
It's sort of like, a, you know, a, an old 1930s great white country cliche, you know? And, uh, and, 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 you know, now looking back, yeah, I would love to have done something more. But again, it has to stand for what it is. Right. Okay, so if if uh, if they were ever to make Craven's Last Hunt into a movie, who would you cast as Craven? You know, people ask me that question all the time. Oh, really? Always have better ideas than I do. <laughs> you know, um, someone once says, "Me and Neeson, the Lee Neeson, maybe you know, twenty years ago would have, would have been a pretty good Craven." Um, you know, a young Arnold Schwarzenegger would have looked great as Craven. I don't think he would have been able to sell the character from an acting point of view. I don't know. Do you have any ideas? Uh, I would... Let me think. I think I would say, believe it or not, Brian Cranston from um, Brian? Breaking Bad. No, I know who Brian Cranston is. I'm just thinking about it as you're saying it. I think Brian Cranston... Uh, you know... He, I think he needs someone a little younger than Brian. I think he's got the acting chops to sell that character. Yeah, maybe um, if you were younger. I, yeah, I think a younger Brian Cranston, although a younger Brian Cranston doesn't have the same acting chops than older Brian Cranston. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's what I've always said. My thing is, I think that they would have a hard time with Craven's last time because if, if you're, you have some actor that's playing Spider-Man and you're paying $30 million, right, to play Spider-Man, and you go, by the way, we're going to bury you in the ground for a third of our movie. And the villain <laughs> and character. And it's going to be a hard one to sell. So, you know, I've written a number of these, uh, I'm working on probably my fifth one now, these uh, Warner Brothers DC uh, direct-to-video animated movies, uh, which I just had a John Constantine film that came out at the beginning of October. They're called The City of Demons. It's one of my favorite things that I've ever done in animation. But I think Craven's Last Hunt would be a great animated film. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you don't have to worry so much if Spider-Man's in the ground for a third of the movie. It's okay. Um... And then Brian Cranston could play Craven. Yeah, <laughs> true, very true. And he could be really tough without having to go to the gym once. Well, that's a great idea. I'm all for it. An animated movie with Brian Cranston is Craven. I love it. Yeah, I think that'd be great. Now, let's see. Um, you already mentioned, you just mentioned Constantine. What other things are you working on right now that you'd love to share with the listeners? Um, that's, well, it's the sharing part with Harvard. Because I have a lot, I, this year I've worked on four different animated uh, projects. Um, and I can't really talk about any of them. <laughs> <laughs> but they're really good, I promise. Uh, really, really good. Um, and uh, and also, I can't talk about it, I know I, when, when the next season of Marvel uh, Animated Spider-Man comes out, I have two more, I had an episode last season, I have two more episodes coming out in the new season. Uh, that were really, really a lot of fun. It's a, it's a completely opposite some of the critics last time. Very, very light. Uh, and it's, it's dramatic as well. There's, there's, uh, there's dramatic need to it, but the overall feeling of the show is much lighter than anything that we did create. But I really enjoy writing for that show. And again, I have a number of these animated things. Just finished one animated movie, I'm just starting another, and I can't talk about any <laughs> Comic book clients have uh, a new series, uh, Third Issue, will be out this month, uh, the end of November. Uh, from IDW, it's called Impossible Incorporated. It's sort of a big cosmic uh, adventure, sort of a fantastic four meets Doctor Who, um, you meet Doc Savage, except the lead character is a 16-year-old uh, girl genius leading his team across the dimensions in time and space. And I'm doing it with my buddy Mike Cavalera, 
who I worked with on, on the Life and Times of State of 28 is one of my favorite projects that I've ever done. And we are just having the best time. It's, uh, it's science, well, you know, they call it science fiction. I have to call it science fantasy because you can't focus science too carefully. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's pseudoscience uh, and a big, big cosmic adventure uh, in the sort of Jack Kirby, uh, Doctor Who tradition. Although we started working on this before I ever seen that. It fits very much with that sort of uh, that sort of adventure, and I'm really really happy with the book. And uh, you know, these 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 creator-owned books are hard to get traction and and find an audience. So I would encourage anyone who appreciates and enjoys my work to please go out and check that out. First two issues are out. Third issue comes out at the end of the month. Uh, Keith Gibbon and I are continuing to write our crazy Scooby Apocalypse from DC, which is a lot of fun. And then in February, I have a new book coming out. Uh, Karen Berger has a new line for Dark Horse called Berger Books. I have, we just announced that uh, New York Comic Con has a new series called The Girl in the Bay. It's a very dark, fairly twisted, uh, time travel, murder mystery, supernatural thriller. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Really, really having a lot of fun with that. You know, Karen's an old and dear friend, and I work with her at DC and Vertigo. And it's really, really great to be working with her again. I'm very, very excited about this project. So, uh, and I have a bunch of other things circling the airport that I can't talk about. Well, you are certainly busy. You certainly have a, a lot of things going on yeah. right now. Yeah. You better to be busy than the alternative. I got to tell you, as a freelancer, you know, it comes in waves. Yeah. And, and sometimes the waves come in and sometimes the waves go out. And you're standing on the beach going, where's the wave? You know? So when the waves come in, you got, I would say you got to grab your surfboard and jump on. Uh, I'd rather have too much work than too little. And this has been a very, very busy year and lots of great projects. So I'm very grateful. Well, and I'm grateful that you still take the time to talk with us, the fans, um, even oh, even though you have all these different projects going on. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, I'm grateful that after all these years, people still want to talk about it. You know, yeah. that's the thing. Um, you know, sometimes it's like, uh, oh, God, you guys just want to talk about Kramer? Can we talk about blood? But then I take a half step back and I realize, this is 30 years later, and people still want to talk about this story. That's not a bad thing. That's a really good thing. Mm -hmm. And so I'm appreciative that the story has had a long, healthy life. And not only from the people that read it back then, but that people are reading it and discovering it right now. And that's, you know, and that's, that's what you want for any story that you write. You want it to have a life. And you want it uh, to, to keep being discovered and rediscovered as time goes on. So I'm happy to talk about it. It's, it's a great thing. And I'm really, really grateful.